Welcome everybody to episode 75 of the Anagram Journey podcast with your Anagram godmother, Suzanne Stabile. You might also be calling this part three of the Anagram Trauma and Adoption series. My name is Joel and I and Dr. Barbara Ryla will be joining Suzanne and a group of people who met at the Micah Center walking through some questions and a discussion on how the Enneagram plays a role in trauma and adoption. If this is your first time ever listening to the podcast, welcome, and maybe pick a different first episode. If you're listening specifically for this series, jump back to part one and listen to part one and two first before this one, because they all really build on each other. And if you're listening because you're just joining the Enneagram journey, I highly recommend episode 70. Dr. Barbara and Suzanne start off with some Q&A. They address parents who have uh, serious trauma in their past, biracial adoptions, and it wouldn't be the Enneagram journey if I didn't try to talk about myself a little bit, and we talk about blended families. The back half of the podcast is loaded with great information as Suzanne and Barbara talk about difficulties for each Enneagram number as children being adopted and then the struggles for each Enneagram number as adoptive parents. To reiterate, and I think it comes out in all three episodes, Suzanne, Barbara, and Life in the Trinity Ministry could not be more pro-adoption and pro-foster care. And they address that at the end of the episode. The plug for today's episode is a seasonal plug that I'm very excited about. Boot Camp. The registration uh, with early bird pricing begins on February 1st. Because of the incredible demand over the last couple of years, there are going to be two identical boot camps this year, June 11th through the 14th and August 6th through the 9th. Both are going to be held at Highland Park United Methodist Church on the SMU campus in Dallas. So be sure to visit the Life in the Trinity Ministry website on February 1st Check out the information, the dates, the expectations, and take advantage of early bird registration because I'm pretty sure that is going to fill up very quickly. With that being said, I know I speak for my mom uh, and everyone at LTM that we hope that this three-episode series has been beneficial and a good resource for everyone who is working with adoption or has been adopted or has trauma in their history and that we can use it to grow moving forward. Thank you for listening, and let's get to Dr. Barbara Ryla and Suzanne Stabile. I guess there's some things that I've realized that I get like instinctually as an adoptive mom that other people wouldn't necessarily get. Um, because like I understand that loss on a deeper level. I didn't have a, that question didn't come, not come out very specifically, but you, you know what I'm getting at? Yes. Okay. I think it, what you're saying is because you've done your own hard work and you've looked your trauma in the face and you did not let it stare you down, that you now know the face of trauma. You now know the face of parental loss. You know the feelings associated with that. And so you've got a radar for those experiences in your child. And that's only because you are a healthy person having taken the healthy approach that you have. Um, I think 
where Suzanne has some natural concerns are people who haven't done the hard work of the psychotherapy and the self-examination and the assignment of blame for the various traumatic experiences. Those are the people that are fostering and adopted that we worry about. You have a very, very challenging and difficult road and kudos to you that you're willing to do this because everything you do for your child, you have also had to work on for yourself first, or you will immediately have to go work on whatever it is. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. My, uh, keeping my therapist busy right now. <laughs> yes. Cause it was, that was like the first thing that, I mean, I brought, we brought him home from the hospital and then it like a lot of things I went, I got so mad at my mother. I was like, why didn't you protect me better? And I was like mm -hmm. right back in therapy. And, mm -hmm. uh, because mm -hmm. it's, it's, uh, that line then of, of parenting. It blends, yeah. it bleeds over into being parented and whatever our experience of being parented, it does, it bleeds over into parenting. So I want to say an Enneagram thing. And then I want to say a bigger thing. I'm, I'm adding to the kudos. So number one, for you as an eight, to be vulnerable enough to go to therapy for years, to be vulnerable enough to know when you're healthy and know when you're not, for you as an eight to be vulnerable enough to adopt and vulnerable enough to know when you need help post-adoption is a lot. That's a lot, a lot. So my hat's off to you. Now I want to say this, and I say this a lot. <laughs> the Enneagram is really great. And it's just one tool. Mm -hmm. And if you made an appointment to see Barbara and I, because we were working together with therapy in the Enneagram, and you had a 50-minute appointment with us around mm -hmm. everything you just said, I would have a five-minute contribution and the rest of the time would be Barbara's. And I think we need to make a distinction between, I hate to use the word average, but there are your average adoption questions and your average fostering questions. And then there are questions that are heart searing, really -searing. require her credentials. And mine would be very inadequate. In not mine, I mean, my, my Enneagram credentials are strong but the Enneagram would be a tiny bit of an offering for a way for y'all to work together because the fact that you're an eight, she gets. I think that Enneagram, like for as got, a person. You just got off. Sorry, I'm sorry. Um, every, I always get in trouble for being too loud, so. <laughs> um, it's hard to get in trouble in this room. Yeah, uh, well, um, I think one of the things that helped that about the Enneagram that has helped me so much as a person who has survived so much trauma um, is that it helps me understand people who haven't survived trauma, like um, by the grace of God, I'm married to like a person that ha like he's so normal. It's just people. It's crazy. Uh, like he's so healthy. It's nuts. Yeah. Um, but that's just again, that's the contribution the attributed to the work that I did. So, but the Enneagram like really helped, like it's helped me so much in that relationship because to understand where other people are coming from right. without having all the 
I'm like, so how do you arrive at this without having done all this? Right. So that's right. like the piece of the Enneagram that's been the most helpful to me is understanding people that are not as like just that other yeah. viewpoint. Yep. Yep. I, I, I think it clears the way for you to get the help you need. And I, you know, people love the Enneagram so much. I think we've got to be real careful about what it offers and what it doesn't offer. So my sister this year adopted two kids that she's been fostering. And I'd love, inside I haven't heard much about it today, is she adopted two biracial children and are raising them in a white home, obviously. And uh, I don't want to just pretend like that's not a thing and doesn't carry its own bit of trauma. So I'd love some kind of thoughts on how we can make sure that that's not not a thing mm -hmm. in you know, their lives and also kind of honor that, where they come from. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It is a trauma, and it's an everyday, multiple times a day trauma. Um, <clears throat> and I, I've watched my own responses. If I'm walking down the aisle in the grocery store and I see a mixed family, children of a different complexion than the parent, I look just a split second longer. And because of who I am and what I do, I immediately think they're foster children. And, and that is an every single day, multiple times of day experience for the children that they feel people looking, they feel people asking. The kids at school will tell them, that's not your mom, she's a white lady. How come you got a white lady for a mom? And they don't come home and tell the parents about all these little microaggressions that they're experiencing. So really the best thing to do if you've adopted transracially or transculturally is to move into a neighborhood that is mixed. Attend a church that is mixed. Make sure the children attend a school that is mixed. Make sure that where you shop and who you associate with are families that look like your families. Um, families where there are two dads or two moms have already got that figured out because the um, community that are the gay families have found their community within their community because they're all different alike. And I wish that our transracial, transcultural families would do the same thing. Move the children to a a racially, culturally diverse location, make efforts to be friends with people of different backgrounds, make sure that their life is completely seamlessly mixed. And I, I, I know that a lot of Anglo families are not going to do that <clears throat> because that requires a move down for some of us. Um, it moves us into a neighborhood where perhaps we don't feel as successful or as safe. And that little microaggression that occurs every day, all day long, is truly a factor in the lives of the children. I'm just so grateful for the words that you put into the world. I, I, this sounds like a wrap-up, and it didn't. But I, just, I think you have to name why people are afraid to do that or why they don't want to do mm -hmm. that or what mm -hmm. it's going to cost them to do mm -hmm. that. And the other thing I'd say is I'm just always excited when children have an advocate. Mm -hmm. 
You know, it seems like so often the children are the last ones who are considered mm-hmm. in how we do things and what we do and all that. Here's the thing I would say. There's a, a man who I met at Baylor when he was a student there, and I taught at Baylor for a number of years. And um, I said to him one day, you know, he's black, and I said to him one day, you know, I just, I just don't see color. And he said, well, that's just not all right. That's right. And I thought it was so all right. You know, I thought I had really achieved something by not thinking about color at times. And he said, it's just, that's not all right. You got a lot of work mm-hmm. to do around the story mm-hmm. that you're telling yourself that you don't see color. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, that just brings me back to something I've been thinking about for the last few hours. And that is the phrase that say, love them, love them like they were your own. And they're not in a certain way. Oh. And the family's mixed. It's not an all white or an all black family. And uh, the kids are adopted and it is a blended family. You said it about something else that the goal needs to be different. Mm-hmm. And uh, it seems like we have the wrong goal mm-hmm. when the goal is I don't see color or to assimilate instead of uh, stand yeah. in its own identity. And yes, instead of letting <laughs> everything be what it is. Yeah. So why don't you, Joel, uh, describe for everybody your family? Mm-hmm. My oldest daughter is nine, Gracie, and her sister, Jolie, is seven, and they have the same biological mother and different biological fathers. Uh, And then we have Jace, who is uh, my six-year-old son, and that is my wife Whitney's biological son. And then Whitney and I uh, have a 16-month-old together. Uh, So none of the four kids have the same biological parents. It's just also interesting because it is when I've tried to when I've tried to treat them all like mine, that doesn't work. When Mm -hmm. I have tried to love them all the same, that doesn't work. But when at my best, in little spurts, I love them who they are and the situation as it is, both the good and the bad, that's the best times. And it, it's not often enough that I do that. Three out of the four of the children have graves. Right, right. Oh, that me- metaphor or analogy earlier that you said, it's 100% true. They never know, they now know that they'll always have Josephine. But they never know if they're going to have one kid, two kids, three kids, or four kids. And to watch them adapt to that is astonishing. It's astonishing. And it's just I think we're not looking broadly enough at the makeup of families. And we're trying Mm -hmm. to talk about families changing right now. And that conversation is all around having uh, same-gender parents. And we're not having the, or having biracial Mm -hmm. children. And we're not talking about all of these other mixes that make up Mm -hmm. what family looks like. Mm -hmm. And the thing that I'm concerned about 
is that I had no idea that I was ashamed of, that I had shame from being adopted until I had to go into therapy because all of a sudden people wanted me to, like people would line up and wait an hour for me to sign a book, which makes no sense to me. I'm happy to do it. I'm happy to do it now. But it made me so uncomfortable. To be clear, as an LTM employee, she is happy to do it. I'm happy to do it. (laughs) Austin, Shreveport, Little Rock, can't wait to be there. I am happy to do it. It, but it made me so uncomfortable. And then having my picture taken and signing books made me so uncomfortable. I went into therapy and said, why does this make me so uncomfortable? And it took three months. And it ended up in my recognizing that I felt like I was a fraud. It's mm-hmm. like, no, 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 no. My my biological parents didn't want me. You can't possibly want to have your picture taken with me. Mm -hmm. I'm a reject. Yeah. It's fascinating how whatever, like if Joe does something wrong, it ends up being about me being adopted. I don't know how we got here. (laughs) One more question from me and I'll be quiet again. Do you think it's true? It seems like society, our society, has done a lot of work or is currently doing a lot of work to celebrate the uniqueness of individuals, but not the uniqueness of family units. Of unique family units? Yes. Right. Yes. Yeah. That we're all we're not about, celebrating that. That we're all about be, be you, but as, a, as your household, kind of be like everyone. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think we're all about it. And, and, isn't it interesting when you see same gender parents on a commercial, then you go, oh, that's cool. Or we do. Uh, we say, man, that's cool. What product is that? Because we're switching, right? Like that's where we stand in the world. But there's no way, Joel, to introduce your family system in a television commercial. Your children would have to wear T-shirts or something that said, <laughs> like "Thing one, thing two, yeah, thing yeah, yeah, three. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> there is no way. And yet, y'all, y'all really have some really great family stuff going on. Let's talk a little bit about a school full of children, many of whom were adopted. Okay. Um, I'm the head of school at Vanguard Preparatory School here in Dallas, here with my, our principal, Becky. Um, we have 30% of the kids at our school were adopted into their families. Um, and, uh, I came to Vanguard, my best friend adopted a little girl from, from China 20 years ago and needed some help. And so I found the school that way and had no idea that 30% of the kids were adopted into their families. Um, our population that we serve, about 50% are, have some sort of mental health struggle, uh, depression, anxiety, bipolar, those kinds of things. The other half are on the autism spectrum, mid to high functioning. But if you just look across the whole, um, 30% of them were adopted. And so I was going in as a counselor, counseling kids uh, who went to school there. And the, the founder retired, and we ended up taking over the school. But, yeah, so 30%. And we do. I think what's really neat about the school for kids who were adopted into their family is 
the priority in the population we serve are kids who are struggling with social and emotional health. And so we really prioritize that before academics, which we think all schools should. And you hear a lot of talk about social and emotional learning, but um, these kids are just sponges for a place to um, be understood and heard and to really talk about relationship and how to do relationship. Um, I mean, where do we get, where do we learn to do that? And especially if you come out of a, you know, a situation where you were adopted and it is so complicated. Um, but I, as y'all are talking, what occurs to me is that to understand complicated family systems, you have to slow down. Mm -hmm. I, I think about our work and we look at each other sometimes and just think, it's overwhelming, you know, we're dealing with, families don't come to Vanguard like they go to Hockaday or some other school, you know, where you plan to, to send your kid there, they come to us in crisis. And it's complicated. And to sit down and figure out uh, what's going on and how to peel that apart is, is time consuming and mentally exhausting. And, you know, what we're finding is we just need more and more wraparound services. We need, we have five full-time clinical staff there, but we also have a center for neurological health where we have speech and OT and uh, you know, play therapy and family therapy because the families need all that. I think we're providing an important service. Um, I wish there were more of it in Dallas. Um, I do want to say just as a resource for people that my treehouse is still up and running. Um, check them out. Um, I know they still do post-adoption education in Dallas. Um, and then, um, you know, we do parent education at Vanguard as well. Um, so I think it is, uh, but yet we all have to slow down long yep. enough to be able to hear other people's stories and, you know, really be able to get to that authentic place within ourselves. And that's what I find is it gets so chaotic, and you use that term about nines, you know, that's kind of the way they would describe stress, that I can just uh, stop being able to slow down enough yep. to realize that it's it's right in front of me. You know, if I just I just need to focus on what is within my my care right now, so. Thank you very much. Yeah. I want to talk about a couple of things in response to that. And the first is that, um, do you think, Barbara, that there are learning differences that are more or less associated with adoption, or is it just across the board? <clears throat> I think there is more representation of learning differences, learning difficulties in adopted children. And one of the primary reasons is prenatal exposure to substances while the mother is gestating. So um, children who are removed from their birth parents by Child Protective Services, 90% of those families roughly are involved in substance abuse. So the likelihood of that child being prenatally exposed to a host of substances is very high. If it's a child that has been adopted out of the Eastern European orphanage system, um, most of the women who place their children there or have them removed in those countries are alcoholic. So there's a high likelihood of that population. Um, <clears throat> so that contaminates 
and causes some of the figures to be kind of wonky because their children are products of pregnancies that were risky to begin with from a multitude of directions. Of course, maternal stress, poor prenatal care, lack of emotional support to the mother, all of those factors contribute to difficulties with brain development. And then we have the genetic factor of people who cannot continue to parent their children have themselves got challenges that may be genetically transmitted, whether it be attention deficit disorder with too much impulsivity and smacking kids around because of that, or severe mental illness to where they can't tell what's real and what's not real, so children aren't safe in their care. Um, parents who have underlying anxiety, depression, turn to substance abuse in order to self-medicate. There's just a genetic loading as well. So it's not a surprise to me that statistically speaking, children from adoption, and can I mention that Suzanne's period of adoption is different from current day adoptions. Um, because that would have put you born in the early 50s, 50. 1950. And so the, the incidence and occurrence of drug and alcohol abuse at that time was much less. Environmental toxins were not as um, permeating of all the things we touch, breathe, wear, um, and all of that. So that that group of children up until the 60s um, are less contaminated by the factors that I'm describing. But from about the 70s on to now, um, we have only increased the availability of street drugs and the type of street drugs and the damage that they do to the unborn child. And I, I think that explains the occurrence being high. higher. Mm -hmm. Are there unique struggles for each Enneagram number around adoption, both as a child being adopted and as uh, parents uh, looking to adopt? Sure. Well, I'm, I'm going to start with the parents, and I'm just going to uh, run through the nine numbers, and then we'll go back, and you can talk about them if you want to. So here, here's what I want to say. First of all, it depends entirely on how healthy you are in your number. And how healthy you are is far more important than what your number is. So we can't lose sight of that. And if you're not healthy, that's okay. Get healthy. Get a therapist and do some work and look for a therapist who's Enneagram-wise. And if you don't find a therapist whose therapy is Enneagram-influenced, then teach the therapist yourself about your Enneagram number. And you won't get much pushback from therapists anymore. Their therapists are beginning to really take the Enneagram seriously. So um, if you're a one and you adopt children, then first of all, you're grappling with the fact that you're pretty sure you were supposed to adopt, but you're not positive. Because you're thinking repressed and you often struggle with whether or not you've done the right thing. Secondly, once you enter into the process of adoption, then the critic, the internal critic is engaged, heavily engaged. And every step of the process, you will be criticized 
by your inner critic. Every step. So the question is, how much authority do you have with the inner critic? And how willing are you to use it to get you through the process? And if you don't have enough, then get some help and get it. Because you won't make it through the process without it. And the critic is going to tell you that everything you do is wrong. Everything, every answer you write, every interview you have, everything you do is wrong. So you're going to have to be pretty sure of yourself going in that actually you know that you're right, that you've discerned well, and that you're good for this. And you need somebody to verbally process with who asks you questions but doesn't tell you that you're right because you're dismissive of that. So you got to have somebody who asks questions. There is nobody on the planet who can ask questions like a six. So find one. Then, post-adoption, you're going to have to deal with the critic, and you're going to constantly, and not, I'm not saying occasionally, you're going to constantly compare yourself to other parents. And you will be particularly predisposed to compare yourself to parents who have biological children. Because that raises the bar for you, you think. And then you're in competition in, a, in the deepest way you can imagine. So that then if you win there, then you must be a really good parent. And you're very likely going to be too hard on the kids. And you're going to call it love and the way you structure and all that. You can call it whatever you want to. But the reality is that you need to be careful how you parent and what you have authority over and what you don't. So it's my opinion. I hope Barbara affirms me and then I'll say I happen to know but at the moment it's my opinion that children over eight who are parented by ones need their room to be their own space except when they clean it with parents once a week because you can't keep a room you you can't do perfectly what ones have decided to perfect whatever that thing is <laughs> But it often seems to get lived out in how you make a bed. I don't understand that, but it's a big thing. And you will second-guess yourself always about parenting because you will always have the critic. And so you must name your critic. You can't argue with a nameless voice. And you need to pick the name carefully because you need to stick with it. You don't, don't ever change the name. That negates the whole process. I think that pretty much sums it up. I think it's a painful place to be um, a parent one on the Enneagram, particularly if the child is struggling to experience a bonding. So children that have reactive attachment disorder or any even shade of ambivalent or anxious attachments, um, the one on the Enneagram is automatically going to assume it's a mistake, an error, something they're doing wrong. And that is a huge and unnecessary emotional burden that has to be 
addressed or you will drown in that relationship. Twos. Twos are in the feeling triad, but they don't feel their own feelings. They feel the feelings of other people. You cannot parent a child feeling their feelings. You cannot parent a child effectively when you're feeling their feelings. You have to be feeling your own. And be mindful of them. It can be a great gift, but it's a great problem if you're lazy and if you just let yourself just feel their feelings. So the problem with twos is they always appear, they almost always, appear to be doing really good parenting. And often it's really unhealthy parenting because you're responding to the child's feelings. So here's, here's an example. In our family, you would get grounded by me, and then 10 minutes later, I'd be asking you if we're good. Like, you know I had to do this, right? Like, I'm, I'm just trying to love you well, so are we good? And then you lose, like I lost so many times, because once you have to be good, then you're, then you just lost, <laughs> you lost. So twos, you have to be very careful that the feelings that you respond to are your own and not the child's. Then you respond to the child's feelings. And it's, that's a two-step process that's really hard to remember. Um, twos, you can't love enough for the other person. They got to do their own loving. You've got to do your part on the loving. Twos, when a child who you are parenting and who you love deeply is mad at you, that's really healthy. And you need to let that happen and you need to let them be. I'm a big believer if you are married or if you have a partner and uh, each of you parenting in your own style and I don't believe in I'll always back you and you always back me. That's, am I good on that? No, you're good on that. Oh, good. <laughs> I, you know, we're two different numbers. Our children knew to go to Joe for the big things and me for the little things. And that's how they got everything they wanted. <laughs> By knowing which parent to go to. Life worked out really well for them. Twos, be careful about putting your desire for relationship on your children. Uh, and be careful about putting your way of seeing on your children. I remember saying to our youngest, BJ, who's a four, I, I would say, uh, I know it really hurts your feelings when people don't like you. And he would say, I don't care. And I would say, well, of course you care. Well, no, actually, I really don't. <laughs> this is before I learned the Enneagram. He didn't care. He didn't care. You know, there, there are numbers that don't care if other people like them. Can you believe that? <laughs> <laughs> so you have to be careful about that kind of, you know, putting your stuff on them. Uh, every number has to be careful, but that's a thing that twos do. You have to be pretty good to yourself around all of the effort you put into parenting each child equally. Our children used to talk to me about, uh, they each would think I had a favorite and it was a different one. And um, they would say, who's your favorite? When they were alone with me, they would say, who's your favorite? And my answer was the child that needs me the most at that time. And... 
twos, you're going to have to have an answer like that that's your answer that works for you because you will favor one child over the other in behavior during different periods of time based on their needs. You just will do it. I have met a two that doesn't. So is that all right? Yep. Do? Okay. Mm-hmm. I, you know, once your number, you feel like, I, I, Barbara's here. I don't want to answer. <laughs> I would say that the same thing for... Um, one, in terms of feeling rejection, I think twos are also very vulnerable. I think that's a different kind of hurt. That's a heart hurt. Mm-hmm. Um, the other, the one experiences it as a moral lapse and failure. Mm-hmm. But the two, it's a searing heart hurt. You don't want me either. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. If the child's the two. If the child, well, no, if the child if the parents, is rejecting the parent, the parent who is the two. Yeah. yeah. I don't want to talk about that. All right. <laughs> Uh, I thought that was my line. Oh, that is your line. All right. Threes. Here's the number one problem. Sometimes you wear your children like an overcoat, like they're an extension of you. And you believe that good parenting includes how your children are seen in the eyes of other people. And that's a, they're not an extension of you. They're their own person. And that's not okay. The reality then is that threes have to be very, very careful about allowing for difference and about having children who are average. Mm -hmm. Average students, average soccer players, just average. I, I used to be close to a woman who is a therapist and uh, she left Dallas. She didn't like Dallas, which I know doesn't apply to everybody, but it's an important answer to a question. And she was in Dallas visiting, and she said, uh, so after, after people in Dallas get the right zip code and the right job and the right house and the right everything, what do they compete with? And without taking a breath, I said, their children. So you got to be real careful if you're a three on the Enneagram about um, your child needing to be better than the other kids on the team or have better grades or being, you know, all those bumper stickers. Which means automatically that adopted children are at an immediate disadvantage because statistically they are more likely to experience things that will make them less successful less achieving, more ordinary, special in the bad way. Yeah. And so three parents, I think, wrestle with the fact that their kids don't reflect as well on them as um, they should and that it is adoption that is to blame. And when that kind of an unspoken internal message is present in a three parent I promise you the children sense it or outright know that they are presumed not to be adequate because they're adopted not because they have learning difficulties but because they're adopted it's interesting to watch parents put problems on adoption Mm -hmm. that would have happened with a biological Mm -hmm. child yeah that's Mm -hmm. a fascinating thing 
um, you know, I like I'm I'm going through the trouble spots right now. There are good things too. Oh I'm yes, just, I'm going through all the trouble spots because you know the good stuff. Fours. As parents, you are so good at bearing witness to pain that you might not insist that your children take the necessary steps to not be in pain. It's like when kids are hurting, there are things you can do to insist that they do life differently so that they're not hurting. But when you get caught in bearing witness to their pain and you kind of just get into being there with them in it and all that, that's, that's frequently not helpful. Fours are, uh, there are fewer fours in the world than any other number. I think significantly fewer. And it might mean at times that you're a little too unique for your child who has the uniqueness of being adopted. So it would be important for you to watch for that. Four parents of adopted children need to not make adoption bigger for the child than it is. You know, for some children it's huge, and for some children it's kind of a thing that they've kind of put their arm around, they're doing all right with. Don't, don't make it bigger than it is. And because fours are drawn to things that are um, unique, be careful when adopted children are kind of wanting to blend in, not to focus on the uniqueness of the fact that they're adopted or that they're biracial or that they anything, any of the things that go with that, that they are an international adoption. Fives. Uh, we dealt a lot with that. Fives, you know, have a measured amount of energy every day. And it's like manna. You can't store up for the next day. You just get a certain amount every day, and when it's gone, it's gone. And that makes parenting very challenging at times, particularly parenting multiple children. I don't know what the percentages are, but there is a seemingly high percentage of international adoptions where children have attachment disorders. Mm -hmm. And when they go to find out um, to a therapist, then part of the therapy for children with attachment disorders is touching, lots and lots of touching. And if you're a five on the Enneagram, that's like asking for something you don't have. You have to figure out ways to manage their need for touch that don't take all of the energy that you have. So the first time we were ever asked that question, somebody in the room asked us, and it was a five. And I said, I don't know. I just went, take it, Barbara. <laughs> but here's what I remember. My mother was a five on the Enneagram. And I remembered that when I was a child, I always had long hair, and she used to put me on the floor in front of her and brush my hair. And then she'd braid it, and then she'd unbraid it, and she'd brush it again. Well, you see, if I was on the floor in front of her, she could touch me, but I couldn't touch her. So I got my needs met, and she preserved her energy. And she had all kinds of things she would do. She would say, if you lay still, I'll read to you. Or if I would get all needy in church of being touched, she would say, you can put your head in my lap, and she would play with my ear. Just my ear. And if I started to reach for her, she would stop. 
when I want to show Joe the deepest, greatest affection I have for him, I play with his ear. And he asked me one time why I did that, and I said, because my mom and because women just hug you all the time, but nobody ever touches your ear but me. (laughs) (laughs) So there's that. Um, Sixes. It's interesting, uh, Patty, that you talked about slowing down because you're a six, and sixes have the greatest ability for seeing things in context of all the numbers, but they move so slow that the rest of us get a little antsy. So if you're a six parent, then recognize that seeing things in context is a great gift. Making decisions over time is uh, really great with some numbers and really hard for other numbers. So aggressive children will be very impatient with the time you take as a six parent to decide whether or not they can go, whether or not they can do what they want to do, whether or not. The trickiest thing, the trickiest thing for six parents is that they doubt themselves or they don't trust themselves. And so I would give you a mantra if you're a six parenting a child that you say every morning while you're brushing your teeth over and over. And that mantra is, I am a good parent and I can trust my own judgment. Over and over and over. And you know you should brush your teeth for two full minutes. So that's a lot of I'm a good parent and I can trust my judgment. Another thing for six parents is don't ask your children too many personal questions at one time. Your questions are too deep for adults, much less for children. So don't ask such deep questions. Because they will try to give you answers and then you won't buy it. And it's because they don't have any idea what you're talking about. So be careful about that. And don't put your anxiety on your child. Don't be the parent who says, don't talk to strangers. Be careful. All, all, all that stuff that sixes feel, don't put it on your kids. I like that. All right, you take sevens. Seven. Mm. I'll take sevens. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) I'm fired. (laughs) So seven parents um, tend to try to use humor as a substitute for methodical parenting. Mm -hmm. Or playfulness. It may not necessarily be humor, but playfulness or silliness. Sevens more than any other Mm -hmm. number. And you Mm -hmm. get an excuse because you're in the thinking triad, so you're thinking dominant. But sevens more than any other number cannot understand illogical unhappiness. If you're unhappy and it's not logical, sevens don't have any place to put that. They just don't know what to do with that. So they just tell you that it's ridiculous for you to be unhappy. Because things are fine. Why, why would you be? So the seven would only look at the happy side of that coin. Yep. Yep. Good. Sevens also, as parents, tend to reframe not just their own lives and their own experiences, but they reframe their children's experiences, too. And that doesn't work for people who aren't sevens. And sevens have a very difficult time 
acknowledging and paying attention to feelings, accommodating feelings, very difficult time. No, I think that's really true because it's not fun. It's not playful. It's not funny and it, it hurts. And so we just don't want to go there. So you can imagine that a, a parenting as a seven to a wounded child is kind of the, the two opposites. You've got one enthralled with joy and pleasure and the other one entrenched in suffering and misery. And so creating a juncture point between a struggling child and a seven personality is going to be a huge load of work on the seven parent. Exhausting. Been there, done that. Just something that I just experienced for the first time is having a a different memory of an experience than my child that backfired recently on accident where I was like, let's go do this. And she's like, no, I was like, we had a great time. No, we didn't. (laughs) (laughs) No, actually we didn't have a good time. You may have. (laughs) Yeah. You know, um, I'm, I'm, I'm hesitant to, um, talk about opposites, but I'm going to do it for a minute and just say that, Fours and sevens are opposites in how they deal with feelings. Fours prefer the sad, dark half, and sevens prefer the happy, light half. And so that's if you're parenting a child who seems to be perhaps a four, then that's an extra challenge. Mm-hmm. Eights and sixes, same thing. Uh, so there's a, there are some that are more challenging. That are, yeah, that are just more challenging. I also think that um, seven parents have to be very careful that their children don't get jealous of their relationships with other children. Many sevens are like the Pied Piper, Mm -hmm. and all the children want to be with them. Mm -hmm. And your children can get territorial about you and jealous of the other children who want to be with you. So I think you have to watch for that. That's true. All right, eights. It, it would be impossible to have a better advocate on the Enneagram if you're a child than an eight parent. However, if you're the eight parent, how you serve as an advocate for your child can make it or break it for that kid. Mm-hmm. And if you're an eight parent, you have to be very careful about how you treat teachers mm-hmm about how you treat coaches, about how you treat other parents, about how aggressive you are at the school or at ball games or at other events. Uh, because children who are dependent or withdrawing numbers are um, sometimes embarrassed by your aggression. They feel like they're in a one-down position when you're aggressive on their behalf as opposed to being in a one-up position because you're taking care of them and and you're doing things on their behalf. Eight parents, sometimes you let your children in on too much information when they're too young to have it. So you need to make sure that what you share is age appropriate, not for you at that age, but for your child at that age. You know, eights are, are honest, period. 
And sometimes nuance is necessary in parenting. Aides tend to be kind of brutal with their honesty and uh, sharp and quick. And I, I think sometimes nuanced honesty is necessary for children. Nines, it is not good to merge with your children. So nines merge with whoever's bigger in the room, right? And uh, you just can't merge with the agendas of your children and be a good parent. And you have to be careful about merging with their ideas about something or their questioning of something. You uh, also have to be mindful that it's not always good as a parent to see both sides of things. Sometimes you need to just see the parental side. And you need to be more attentive than you tend to be. Uh, Lots of times with nine parents, things happen around you that you don't pay any attention to because you're asleep, literally or figuratively, or because you're in that place of not wanting to be affected by life. And you have to be affected by the lives of your children almost 100% of the time. You just have to stay dialed in on a level that you're not inclined uh, to be in on because you don't have the energy for it. Nines have the least energy of all the numbers. Because they're boundaried, now listen to this, because this has a lot to do with parenting. They're boundaried internally and externally. And what that means is they're trying to keep in anything that would cause conflict, and they're trying to keep out anything that would steal their peace. So that's an extra burden and an extra challenge for nines as parents. All right, now we're going to talk about children, and we're going to add adoption. Ones, these children will naturally feel anger because ones naturally feel anger, but they will be afraid to show it. And they also have a tendency to mistake honesty about their own feelings for rudeness. So... They've been, they think they have to be nice and they have to behave appropriately. So they're afraid to be honest about their feelings because that might be rude. They're afraid to let you know that they're angry. And so if you're a parent of a one, you have to create opportunities for self-disclosure that you don't judge because that's real important to them. Mm -hmm. So the one child is going to be very vulnerable to rejection, especially if they've entered the family by adoption, um, because the external critic voice is presumed to be coming from the parent, and that's where it internalizes, I think, into the child. And the internalization of that critical, self-critical thinking um, always circles back to my birth parents didn't want me, didn't keep me, I'm not good enough, and now the person who loves me is continuing to tell me I'm not good enough. So there's a deep double wounding, I think, in children who are ones in adoption. Do you think that you can talk to them about, at what age can you talk to children about that in ones? about that inner critic? I, I think um, 
some children are reporting hearing voices, and we take that to mean psychosis, but some children are able to describe hearing a voice of an inner critic as young as the ability to, to begin talking. And so I think we probably want to begin talking to them very, very young. Okay. Twos are often out of touch with their real desires. You know, you ask a two what they need, a child, an adult, but you ask a two child what they want or what they need, and they don't know. And they're not being manipulative when they tell you they don't know. They don't know. And so your response of, of course you do, is not an appropriate response because they don't know. Uh, so here's what they do. They wait and see what everybody else is going to do. And then they do what they think will make other people like them. And they're very focused on what other people think about them. Very focused. And then they're hyper-focused on what other people think about them as adopted children. Mm -hmm. Because the adoption becomes pivotal to the sense of security and whether or not we have pleased another person. And when you think about the ultimate pleasing of the parent, which is the basis for all parent-child relationships, if you've gone awry at the very front end by not pleasing the parent you were born to and you're sent away or you're taken away, then that leaves a cloud mm -hmm. over top of that two child. All right, threes, they want to be liked and they want to be seen as special, not as unique. They don't need to be seen as unique, but they want to be seen as special, usually having to do with what they've accomplished. And occasionally they get in trouble for behaving arrogantly or as if they're better than. And when that happens, they are devastated, devastated because they didn't mean to, literally. They didn't mean to be bragging. We, we have a grandchild who we think is a three, and everybody will, in the car, if we are in a car with a bunch of the grandkids, everybody will kind of say something they've accomplished or that they did great, and you hear her from the way back say, I beat all of them. <laughs> kind of comes like that, too. Yeah, and I made better grades than all of them. <laughs> It's very interesting. It's very interesting to watch. Sad. Well, essentially, threes as children have the same desire to be successful as adult threes do, but it's not measured in the same kind of ways. So in watching her, if we're right about her, they I think they just measure their own successes as they go along, and they don't care if you know or not. They know. So he, I, I have one big thing to say about children who are fours, and you might want to add to that, and that is that they have especially delicate feelings. And when people are angry with them, they fill up with shame, bottom to top with shame. We also have a grandchild who I think is a four, and he's got some other issues going on, and he gets in trouble a lot. And I think that he is just full of shame, if I have any gifts for reading that in a child. And shame is one of the darkest places 
to try to rescue a child or an adult from. Um, and as many times as I've worked with a child around shame, I hate, hate, hate to do it unless the parent is there because parents are the ones that I want to help recognize the shame because shame comes masked with all kinds of behaviors that don't look like shame. In children, shame comes out looking like rage or blame or lying or um, general acting out behaviors. And that's easily misread as shame. It, it, it's misread as Something other than yeah. shame. And so parents don't always recognize it because it comes cloaked in a different garment. So I think we've got to be aware of what the markers are for children who are experiencing shame. Threes, I think this is a big issue for threes as well. Yeah, particularly adopted children, uh -huh. particularly. Yes, yes because yeah. it's the shame of, I wasn't even good enough, I wasn't right. even worthy enough to keep, why do I even exist? This will be the child that say, I should never have been born. Yeah, you know, it's very interesting to me to think back on the fact that as a child, I was very aware of pregnant women. And I never could figure that out. My mom said I used to want to touch women's bellies when they were pregnant. And she used to, you know, that was no-no in the 50s, 1955 uh -huh. when I was five. And I, I think it's because I was looking for what, what, what happens here. What is that? Yeah, and then I wonder if that triggers shame for children like mm -hmm. adopted fours. Mm -hmm. All right, fives. Um, they want to do things according to their own principles, not yours. So you're going to have to have some discussions around whether or not you have a difference in your principles and their principles because they don't necessarily think that you're right and they're wrong. Fives tend to think about something on a deep enough level, even as children, that they're pretty sure they're right about that. And as children... Fives have that energy problem of a measured amount of energy every day. And parents of adopted children frequently want them to perform for other people or talk to other people or... Be present, show yes, up. Yes, yeah. And Interact. that fives have a very difficult time with right. that. Right. I stood right here and listened to a parent of a five adopted child say to you, you know, all she wants to do when she gets home from school is go to her room and play with her own dolls. And we have her signed up for soccer and other things. And she doesn't want to do anything but play with her dolls. And you looked right at them and said, well, I think you ought to let her go to her room and play with her dolls. Uh -huh. And they were totally disheartened by your response. Mm -hmm. So I'm I didn't sure. get involved. I just let you take it all. <laughs> she let me take the fall. I did. I gave myself I, the fall. I remember doing it. I feel shame about it. <laughs> so what you have to know about five children is that they don't like for you to get in their business. And... Five children who are adoptees don't want you in their business and they're afraid not to let you in. Mm -hmm. And that makes them angry. Because mm -hmm. there's no winning. 
with that issue. They can't be alone in adoption, but they can't be expressive of the issues around adoption, and it's an untenable position. And I think the biggest issue for children who are sixes who are adopted is that they ask so many questions, and it makes adoptive parents feel insecure. Very. They just ask question after question after question, and they want answer after answer after answer. And adoptive parents personalize that. Mm -hmm. And it's not about you, it's about them. Mm -hmm. And they manage finding their way in the world by asking questions. Because the parents are taking all those questions as, what, am I not good enough? Yeah, you don't want me. <laughs> you don't want me? Yeah, yeah. And that's not what the child is asking. The child is asking because they have an information vacuum about how they came to be themselves and in this family. And every child has a birthright to know their story. That's a good line. Yeah, and yeah, as hard as that story good. might be. All right, sevens don't tell you things that are upsetting because they don't want to be upset by them again. And sevens are trying to keep the upsetting things from affecting them. And so they're extraordinarily optimistic. But there's a problem with that, and that is they don't develop skills for dealing with difficulties. I guess I was learning it as a child. Um... So maybe I can't speak from personal experience, but watching children who are sevens, um, the bounciness that they have and the excitement um, is not compatible with the kinds of hurts and challenges that come along. And so I see sevens kind of trying to skate over the hard part, skip the painful part, and bounce on to the next thing. So it's true that what is learned in a seven child can be avoidance, denial, minimization, rather than skills of, yeah, it hurts, deal with it, regroup, and go on. Yep, yep. All right, eights. First of all, children, eight children are very aggressive. And raising them can be difficult because eights, as children, shift the blame and don't take responsibility for the stuff they do. That, that's not true of eights as adults generally, but it certainly is true of eights as children. And I, I think it's because they're afraid to be vulnerable. I, I just think they keep vulnerability at bay as much as they can. I don't, I don't know how you set up teaching a child the cycles through of being vulnerable and being okay and when they refuse to be vulnerable. What do you do with that? Yeah. All right, and nines. The, the overall thing I would say is that nines uh, are so afraid of conflict because they believe that conflict ends in fragmentation and disconnection. And for an adopted child... That's kiss of death. It's just everything, actually. Mm -hmm. And so I think uh, nine children, I think nines erase themselves. I think it shows up in nines as children when they're adopted. Mm 
And I think they just erase themselves in situations so they won't be conflictual in any way and there won't be further fragmentation. So they don't assert themselves and they already don't think they matter and they just quietly move themselves. So I think lots of times nine children just aren't seen. Mm -hmm. They certainly aren't brought to therapy as frequently as they need to be. Mm -hmm. And I can tell you that when I have the sibling group in to the room, the nine child is going to be inevitably the one that burrows to the bottom of my pile of stuffed animals and kind of sits there. Or they're the ones that get in the teepee and close the door. Close the door. Yep. Mm -hmm. So you got to bring them out. You just got to gently keep insisting that they tell you what they want or what their preference is or what they feel or what they think. And and I tend not to pull them out. I tend to crawl on the floor over there to them mm -hmm. and peek under the tent or through a crack or burrow under the animals with them and lie on the ground with them and try to talk them safely into engaging. All right, the last thing I want to talk about is belonging. And I just want to say that I have been teaching for years now that I think every human being wants at least mm -hmm. two things. I think everybody wants belonging and everybody wants their life to have meaning. And so the thing that I would say in our discussion is that belonging is really, really tricky for adoptive children. Mm -hmm. It's just so hard to believe that you really belong, that you're really safe and you really belong. And I also think that there's a tendency to talk to children too much about belonging children who are adopted, too much about you belong to us, you belong in our family, you belong with us now. And every time it comes up, uh, I think adopted children question it. It's like there's this thing of, well, if I belong, why are we talking about it? Mm -hmm. Right? And the other thing is, I think adopted children do not want the meaning that their lives have to be connected to adoption. Mm -hmm. And there's a tendency to do that. Mm -hmm. Self-assigned. Yeah. Many times. Yeah. 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 Lots mm -hmm. of times. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yep. And temporary belonging. Well, I'm, I'm, do, but do I belong? Mm -hmm. And belonging is, um, that's adoption. Belonging is how we build families and friendships and relationships and marriages. And whenever we talk about adoption, I always think, of our sense of belonging being created more like we marry our best friend rather than that we are born of somebody. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Adoption is much more a sacrament of claiming belonging to one another mm -hmm. rather than the same way that we give birth. And when you think about it, it's a perfectly legitimate way to build a family by getting married, coupling with, partnering sure. with somebody. Sure. That's a way we build families. So if we could 
change the sense of adoption mm -hmm. away from that children have to be born into a family and more that children belong to a family mm -hmm. and belong in their family and that the family members belong to one another. No matter how many family circles they may include, yep. that children belong to their family. And I, I would like that language so much better than adoption. Yeah, me too. I think the adoption community desperately needs mm -hmm. more help. Mm -hmm. And I think we're not going to get it until we're honest about adoption. Mm -hmm. And until we're honest about the complexities of adoption. Mm -hmm. It's supposed to fix everything once adoption occurs. And it doesn't. Mm -mm. And everybody's afraid to talk about it because somehow that seems disloyal to the parents or to the child. And I, it, it's very, very complex. Mm -hmm. And um, I think lots of folks who are outside of any connection to adoption just don't know that. I also think we, and we've done it today, and it's frequently done in the world of adoption, there's a whole group of people that we only talk about in somewhat disparaging terms, mm -hmm. and that's the birth parents. And truth be told, our language and our concept is so unsavory in the direction of birth parents mm -hmm. because of the parents who do abandon children, because of the parents who do abuse children. And what we forget about those parents is they're behaving in the way that they were treated. Nobody comes into the world having a child with the intent to harm the child. The intention of every birth parent, even the ones that I have disparaged today, in their heart of hearts, they wanted the best for that child. Yeah, I believe that too. And we don't talk very much at all about birth parents except in the fairly negative way. Um, and I, I feel a personal responsibility for that, but mm -hmm. I, I think we can do a better job in that. So as you leave, do be merciful as you think about the parents who gave birth to the children that you're rearing, because undoubtedly they did not lose the children because they didn't love them. So I, I hope we've said the right things and I hope what we've done is helpful and I think it will be and I feel very sure that we're going to be asked to do this again. So um, we'll see where Joel decides to put that in the months and years to come. Thank you both and thank you all for coming and making a day of it. Definitely added way more than I can quantify. Thanks everybody. Thank, thank you. you. That's it.